Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. This week I'm speaking to Kate Obridge, Executive Head Teacher at Ashdown Primary. Um, we recorded this when we had had the news that we knew that schools were going back on the 8th of March and we talk a little bit about how, how Kate and her community might feel about that at the end of this podcast. I really enjoyed my conversation with Kate. She is very honest and open and doesn't shy away from the challenges of the role of head teacher, but she clearly just absolutely loves doing the job and that that shines through. I did not imagine that we would be discussing topics as varied as cleaning toilets, putting paintbrushes back into pots, uh, broken bones and getting children to eat their vegetables, but we cover all of those in little, little gems that she really uses to distill some of her wisdom about education and I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I did speaking to her. As ever, I'd just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around issues. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Today, I am joined by Kate Obridge, who is Executive Head Teacher at Ashdown Primary School. Hello, Kate. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Hello. Um, well, thanks so much for being with us today. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, your career today and your current role? So I am currently an executive head teacher at a two-form entry split site school in a market town in East Sussex. Um, previous to that, I've had three other headships, um, backwards chronological order. My last one was... Um, a church school in Rotherhithe and Bermondsey in London. Before that, it was a two-form entry primary in Bromley and sort of London suburbs. And before that, a one-form entry church school in South Croydon. So um, wide and varied, very, very varied, very different schools, very different schools, different needs, different communities. Exactly so. And and I'm, that's what I'm kind of interested to um, hear more about, really, um, and sort of think about your r- reflections on how the role of head teacher varies, firstly, according to the school's kind of context and, and community. I think one of the things I've learned over all this time is that we all know schools are different. Everybody knows schools are different. But I don't think I've really appreciated until later on in my headship career how much the community, the makeup of each individual school community, almost drives what the school provides. Because the community will have needs of whatever kind and they're always different. They can be different from a school that's right next door to another school that serves the same community, but the needs in that community will be different. And I think sometimes they've built up over time. I think sometimes it's to do with um, what kind of people live there, but each one is very different. And that's why I'm a great believer in the one size does not fit all model in schools. Um, Or as Dylan Williams says, everything works somewhere, nothing works everywhere. Yeah, and a conversation I was having the other day on the podcast, we were talking about, um, this is with Loic Menzies from Centre for Education and Youth, and he was talking about um, sort of hollowed out 
system idea and this this need for schools to provide this this wider range of services because of because of a lack of things um coming mm. from other sources um and and do you think that maybe that it's the flavor of that that sort of changes quite a lot depending on on where the school is and and who's attending it i think so and i think it's it, a good school will know its parents it will know its families um good leaders will know their families and you you, you kind of the, the patterns kind of emerge um so for example um a school the second school i was head at in bromley um suddenly over a course of a year we suddenly we found that we had five families that all become single parent families with dads so single dads with full-time care of their children for different reasons all different reasons um, and that was although we'd had families with single dads before we'd never had five mm. in one school community um, and we weren't really sure what to do about that but we felt we should be doing something um, in actual fact all we really did was spoke to all the dads and said would you like to be put in touch with the other four because you're on the same boats and they all said yes please and that's what we did and they took it from there themselves but it was great for us to see the children knowing that their family wasn't different Mm. Their family was the same as the other four families. It, they were only as different as every family is different. They weren't a complete anomaly. And that for us was really important. So, but if you didn't, if we didn't know our community and we didn't know what the makeup of our families was, if we didn't communicate with them, if we didn't interact with them, we wouldn't know that that might be an unmet need. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I'm quite passionate about is, is knowing your community. And it's an extension of being a class teacher. When you're a class teacher, you know your 30 children really well. Mm. When you're ahead, you know all those families, you know all those contexts, you know all those adults. Um, it's, it's the same thing, really. Yeah, and interested, just picking up that that thread, um, because, you, because you mentioned, I guess, being a, a class teacher and mm. and thinking about how um you know you you've evolved personally or other people that you've worked with from that that um teacher role up into to leadership how how do you think people um collect that sort of wider experience and understanding that means that when you're at the the head of a school um you, you know you you can make good decisions and 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 um improve improve the work that you do um to support the school's community I, th I think there's two ways. I think it's it's breadth and it's depth. And I think you, you'll you either do one or the other. So, um, for example, if you start your career in a school in a particular place or a particular school or what have you, um, and you stay there for most of your career as a class teacher and you work your way up the ladder and you eventually end up being the head teacher, which does still happen, you've got that depth of knowledge of that community and those families and you'll see those children grow up and bring their own children to the school and you know you will have that depth of knowledge of that community and their needs and how it all works and how you know especially in village communities rural communities that other people wouldn't have the other thing i think is the breadth where you don't stay at one school all the time you go to lots of different schools for a period of time and you learn in each different each one each one will be different you'll learn a different community and you can take those skills with you to the next one and if you are um climbing the ladder for a better phrase um and wanting to move into school leadership you will remember things that happened in schools you worked in that other people did you think actually that could work here um, especially with issues around um, deprived families 
um, families in need, safeguarding issues, uh, um, English digital language, families, th things like that, because every community is different. And what may be a huge issue in one community may be a small issue in another. So our school at the moment, we've got very, very few children who speak English as an additional language, very few. When we had a child come from Eastern, I think it was an Eastern European country a few years ago, at the beginning of year six, most of the staff had no idea where to start. But there were a few of us who had worked in schools with large numbers of EAL children before, and they had the skills and the knowledge that they'd picked up before. So I think there's the two, the two aspects to it. There's the breadth of having lots of experience in lots of different places, but also that depth of having only stayed in one school and one community, you know them far better than anybody else is ever going to. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess ideally in, in schools, you, you sort of want a, a mix of, 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 mm -hmm. of both of those um, yes. types. And um, another thing that struck me as you were talking there around um, kind of different different parents and um, groups who who might have different different needs within a school. And obviously we've been all been thinking a lot more about parents and the home environment um, because the situation has necessitated it in many ways across the course of the pandemic. But fundamentally, do you think there is that? greater difference between what kind of um for want of a better shorthand kind of leafy suburban you're more kind of pushy parent let's say inverted commas um and you know eal or um you know parents from disadvantaged backgrounds because it sometimes seems that people are quite keen to have a conversation that 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 sorts these people out by their differences rather than looking at the kind mm. of common common yeah. threads and needs what are your thoughts on that it's how I how I often start a meeting with a parent if it's if I think it's going to be a difficult meeting is I start with which is absolutely what I believe that actually we all want the same thing which is the best thing for your child it's very rare that you will ever find a very rare you'll ever find a parent saying they don't want the best thing for their child um even in safeguarding issues even with abusive families you will very rarely find a parent that doesn't want the best thing for their child. And, but what that best thing is will differ from family to family um, mm. and circumstance to circumstance um, because of whatever, whatever stresses and strain that family is under themselves. Um, and whether they're two parents or one parent, whether they're both the biological parents or not, all those different things come into play, how many siblings there are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there'll be one family, I can think of a family at the moment actually who, their whole issue is around um, housing, where they live and where they want to live um, and how they're going to make that happen. That is that is all consuming for them. Whereas there'll be other families that that doesn't matter. That's nothing to do with that. We're worried yeah. about this thing instead. Um, so, but it, again, it comes back to know, knowing your families and, and that's the common thing with parents. I think they all want the best thing for their child. And almost every member of staff in every school will say the same thing. Mm. I call it Kennington cleaner syndrome. When I worked in Kennington in South London as a deputy head, we had this cleaner, she was absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing. She used to clean these toilets like I've never seen toilets be cleaned. And the head said to her one day, said, you do such a good job with those. She said, you know, it's brilliant. She said, it's very simple. She said, I just clean them as if my granddaughter was going to be using them. Oh, wow. And that's it. You know, schools that I lead, I want them to be good enough for any child of mine or any child that my staff have or love to go to. And if it's not good enough for them, then why should it be good enough for anybody else's? 
That is a really, there's a really powerful way of, of thinking about that. And um, again, coming back to this idea of, of the role of the head teacher, what it's, what it's made up of and, and what your kind of priorities <laughs> and motivations are. How, how does that change according to the level of, of school improvement that, that might be required when you come to a school? It's, it's, it's a real, it's a balancing act because yes, you want to meet the needs of your community, but if you arrive at a school in the community saying one thing, officer are saying another thing, and your staff are saying a third thing, then you have to, as the head and the senior leadership team, work out which of those things are the priorities, um, which are the short-term things, which are the medium-term, which are the long-term things. Um, and for me, that often, and again, this is this is grown in me. This isn't something I started off. I didn't start off like this. Um, you sort of find the things we can give everybody a quick win. You know, if there's something that parents have hated for years and you arrive as a new head and they're like, we hate this thing. We hate the way you walk them out by the side gate or something like that. Mm. You can change it really easily and really quickly and it can make a huge difference. But something like, um, I don't know, they think there should be more parental engagement may take longer especially if you're in, a, in an Ofsted window, if you're in a requires improvement or a special measures category, and you, that, that has to be the priority, the standards have to be the priority. Um, but it's working out how to do, all, it's balancing all of those things and working out how to have your strategic plan, if you like, for addressing all of those needs in the right order at the right time. Mm -hmm. it's, it's no good going, oh yes, we run the school for the parents and the community, if you're letting standards go to pot, you know. <laughs> Because, it, but at the same time, you can't just concentrate on maths, reading and writing and ignore the parents in the community. So um, it, it's definitely a balancing act. And in any of your of your headships, um, have you had a sort of significant school improvement journey journey to make? Yes, when I was in Rotherhithe and Bermondsey, we, um, that was a school that required improvement and had never had anything past requires improvement or satisfactory. Um, and I described it afterwards, I like an analogy, you know I like an analogy, but I described it afterwards as being, um, it didn't take much to get it to good, it had all the ingredients it needed, it was a bit like a, we used to have these when I was at secondary school in the art class, a big pot um, that all the paintbrushes went into, and everyone used to stick their paintbrushes and they'd all be sticking out at angles and all over the place. And the art teacher used to come along, collect them with her hands and just sort of put them into the pot nice and neatly. And that was it. And I always described it as being like that. It just had its paintbrushes sticking out in the wrong directions and, um, and it, people just needed to be pulled together and, and, and it just needed some direction. Mm. It had good teaching. It had good teaching assistants. It had supportive parents. Um, who'd been given the wrong messages so that it appeared they weren't supportive, but they were, they wanted to be. Um, they just needed a way in. Um, and that, that's, that really is what, what happened at that school, I think. It wasn't a case of me coming in and rescuing the day. Don't worry, everybody, I'm here. It's all going to be fine. It wasn't like that at all. It was just a case of saying, look, we've got all the pieces we need. We've just got to put them together into the right puzzle and we're done. And that, that's, that's what happened. Sounds, sounds very much like sensitive and appropriate leadership to me and uh, a, a very humble response from you uh, regarding your your role there uh, it wasn't like that in my current school <laughs> we had a situation here when I arrived was 
that uh, school had been a separate infant and a separate junior school, then they federated, and then um, we always call it amalgamation. Legally, it wasn't an amalgamation. Legally, the junior school closed and the infants expanded and we renamed it, but we always call it the amalgamation because that's what it felt like. The infants had always been good, pushing outstanding, and the juniors had, again, had always been RI, requires improvement, um, or satisfaction had never, ever been good. And the challenge there was finding what was good about the junior site because there wasn't very much there were mm. pockets of it mm. there were pockets where they did better than the infants but actually it was a as they described it in the Ofsted report which you can read online it was a root and branch I went at it root and branch she said um, because it had to be it wasn't a case of putting the paintbrushes right in, in the pot mm. anymore you know some of the paintbrushes needed to be stripped down and revarnished. Some of them needed to have new bristles put in. Some needed to go in the bin. It was really, it was, it was hard work, mm. and it was emotionally hard work as well, because it, it, you know, it wasn't a happy outcome for every member of staff or every family, and that's hard to deal with when you want to make it right for everybody. That's hard to deal with. Yeah, and I imagine that must have been also quite difficult overseeing um, that combination of the the two schools, particularly as you describe it. If the um, if if the lower part of the school, you know, felt like they were doing a good job and and passing children on um, to somewhere yeah. where there were there was more challenges, that must that must have built up quite a bit of tension. I would have thought we don't have to go into it in detail, but just kind of... well, I did a staff questionnaire before I arrived in the summer term, and and I said to them, do it now because we're going back a bit. It was paper copies. I said, do it now while I don't know what your handwriting looks like. You just say what you like. And um, the overarching feeling from each site was the infants were saying, well, why are we stuck with these idiots? Because they don't know what they're doing. And it wasn't quite that harsh. Mm. Um, and the junior site were like, why do we have to be stuck with them? They know everything and we're the poor relation. Um, so we, when, we, when I first started, it was very much a case of checking out whether that actually was true. And actually it wasn't true. There were aspects of practice at the infant site that had been in its day pioneering and amazing but it kind of stalled mm. and other schools had overtaken and suddenly it wasn't as great as everybody thought it might have been. And similarly at the junior site, it wasn't as bad as people thought it was. There were, there were pockets of things that are actually pretty good. And so we were able to share pr that practice across both of the sites and, and slowly sort of prove to people that there wasn't a good site and a bad site. We were one big school altogether across two sites. We now have staff that work across both. In fact, my office manager, she won't mind me saying, because she says it out loud herself. She was a junior site member of staff. She now manages both offices across both sites. Um, and when she's working at the infant, she says, oh, it's much quieter here. Oh, I much prefer working <laughs> down here because it's quieter. Oh, but I like being at the junior school. And I said, and I say to her, did you ever think you would say you like working at the infant? No, I didn't. She says, but she does. Um, yeah. And I think that's that that's a testament to the staff, really, that they have they've embraced that culture mm. and as I said at the beginning, and I say this to people all the time, somebody said it to me once when I was a young teacher, whatever situation you're faced with in life, you've got three choices, like it, lump it, or leave it. And some people left it, some people lumped it and then came to like it, and other people liked it in the first place. So, it, you know, um, and that kind of happens, I think that kind of happens with school improvement anyway, because there are always casualties, because if there weren't, then there would have been nothing wrong in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I also think that sometimes it just goes, and I lost one teacher, brilliant teacher, absolutely brilliant teacher, Kathy Cherry, if you're listening, um, because 
she and I just didn't agree on, on the direction we were going in. She was a fantastic teacher. Mm. But at that point in her career and in my career and the point we came together as leaders, we disagreed, you know, um, and so she went to work somewhere else. Doesn't mean she's not a brilliant teacher and I'd have her back like a shot. Mm. But, you know, sometimes th- those things happen. Yeah, and as you say, when it comes down to, you know, professional professional approaches or or disagreement mm-hmm. and there's not it's not a personal thing um That's and right. you don't want to be driven by emotion or personal feelings mm-hmm. in those in those situations um but it's great it's great to hear that um that happy outcome across across those two two schools that you that you've built there yes because when we had the Ofsted which was almost three years later after the amalgamation um you could not in the report you cannot pick one site as being better or worse than the other it is a one school report and it is mm. a one you, it's one offer yeah. you come to us you get one thing it doesn't matter which class you're in fantastic stuff and given given your varied experiences of um of leading schools I'd just like to dig a little bit deeper into how you feel you you might have changed over the the course of your career and if if you sort of went back to some of those earlier experiences or your first headship, what what words of advice would you give yourself based on what you now know? God, you know, I've been thinking about this. I think there's a lot. I think I'd say different things in different in different schools. Yeah. If I went back to my very first headship, I would have said. fight more for what you want with higher bodies in terms of things like finances and buildings Mm. because they're things that when you go into headship new and I hear this from heads now you don't get any training in things like that um and if you've got a good good school business manager you don't really need the training in those things but I didn't have a business manager until this headship three headships without a business manager um so I know all that stuff because I do it myself and I think when I first started, things like that, things like I was very intimidated by health and safety. Um, I had a really awful visit from a fire officer once who was so mean and horrid, I just went and cried afterwards because I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm. Um, I didn't fight with the with whoever, it may have been the diocese at the time actually, or the local authority for funding for things like building work, innovative things that I thought I would like to do, but I didn't know how to go about sorting it out. Mm. Um, And probably knowing, I think I've refined this. I don't think I was ever awful at it, but I think I've got much, much better at it, is picking my battles Mm. and deciding which things I'm just going to think, fine, I'm going to suck that one up because I'm going to fight on this thing instead. Um, That was certainly been the first headship. The second headship, I would say to myself, restructure the staff because there's a level of people there that are not right for those roles. They're not bad at them, mm-hmm. but they're not right in them. And if you'd, if I'd restructured that entire staff, I think we would have had a better outcome. But it was a very well-established staff. It was a very well-established school mm-hmm. and was very successful. And... There's kind, I don't think I was quite brave enough at that point to rock that boat. I was rocking it enough in terms of making them become more inclusive um, and less channeled to let's get everybody to the grammar school, you know. Um, I was concentrating on that, but I actually think I, I think I should have looked a bit wider mm. with that one. Um, 
yeah things I suppose it's things where now I do without blinking that would have cost me sleepless nights 15 years ago Mm. um a lot of it's HR and personnel type issues it's very this is gonna sound awful but there are very few HR issues that I've not dealt with now yeah no I've done disciplinaries capabilities redundancies they're all horrible they're all horrible to do um I've had death of a member of staff, I've had two deaths of a member of staff, um, things like that. that mm. are just, they're all horrible to deal with because you're dealing with people and people's lives. Mm. But I think I've learned that, that 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 is what it is. It is a process. And as long as I am following the process that is laid out by our HR providers, whoever they are, it's local authority or, or a, mm. a contractor or whatever, then A, you're not doing anything wrong to that person. B, you don't have to be scared of the unions because you're doing it properly. Yeah. And they will see that. Um, and it's not personal. No. It just always feels like it. It does always feel like it. And and do you think, I mean, you just you mentioned sort of school school business management, and obviously that's mm. something that's that's can be really new to people in headship, depending on what sort of support they have. Do you think with those HR kind of pro I, I you know appreciate there are processes to be to be followed um in terms of guiding your your role there, but do you think that's something that more training would be useful or a different kind of preparation? Possibly, possibly more training. I think, I'm not sure heads would engage with it necessarily because they've got a business how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I did in my third headship was I, because there was a lot of school business management type stuff that needed doing, and I bought myself a school business manager's handbook, some <laughs> great big file like this, my school business manager now has got it just for reference um and it literally had everything in there that a school business manager would ever need to know so that if I needed to check I could check because it's another analogy now it's a little bit like I don't go and sit in my year six teachers classrooms watching them teach their lessons to check they're doing it properly every day I just don't go in at all we do different monitoring I don't check their planning I don't check the children's levels all the time I'm not sitting on the shoulders of the year six teachers because I trust them to do that job properly for those year sixes and get them through the SATS tests. Hmm. But I still know what they do to get them there. And I think it's the same with the school business manager. You don't need to do the job of the business manager. You don't need to be able to go and do a site survey for yourself or, um, you know, do manage an HR procedure. But you need to know what they're doing, because if you don't know what they're doing, you can't manage them or lead them or do quality con- quality control, quality assurance yeah. on them. Yeah. You know? And then because if something goes wrong, especially with health and safety, even if it is the business manager's fault, if you as the head haven't checked, it's OK, haven't, ma- haven't made sure that all those, you know, um, all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed, if something happens, you're in prison. Mm. you're sharing yourself with the business manager but you're still there yourself so it's it's like the year six teachers you don't have to sit on their shoulder and check what they're doing but you need to know what their job is mm. so that you can check they're doing it properly when you need to so that would be my advice it'd be make sure your school business manager isn't threatened by you because that can happen as well um because they tend to and i don't know why it's like this but they tend to be paid far far less than other people on the leadership team um, and some of them, quite rightly, in my opinion, have a chip on their shoulder about that. Um, so be careful with your business manager, but get a, get as good a relationship as you can with them. And they are worth their weight and go. And they will talk you through all this stuff and they will show you what they're doing. Mm. Um, 
and then you can ask them the question. So my business manager here is absolutely fantastic. She's a brilliant, brilliant business manager. Um, but she'd only ever worked in our county and she'd only ever worked in our school. And when I arrived and I said, well, we don't have to buy the services from county if they're not the best value. Oh, we do. No, we don't. Mm. Oh, don't we? No, we don't. Mm. And now we buy some of our services from county and we don't buy some of our services from county because she didn't realise she could do that. Mm. So there will be times as a head where you do know better. And it's having that relationship with them so that you, but you, you just, you need to know what they're doing. Otherwise you can't check they're doing it properly. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's really interesting how you, how you find a way to get that relationship right, as you say, so that you, you feel like you have enough knowledge and peace of mind, but you're not all over them and, and they, they, they yeah. can, that you can trust them as a professional in the same way as you trust teachers and you know we I do a lot of work talking to to ISBL and other sort of school business managers and this this issue of them not being on the leadership team their voice not being as loud as other people you know is yeah. is still is still an issue for for a lot of people and and I, and I think you know it's it is sometimes to do with that that slightly tricky relationship of somebody who goes I know how to manage all the teachers but I'm not sure how to manage this person yeah it's, yeah, I mean, our, our business manager is on our leadership team, but she's not paid on the leadership scale because mm. she's not a teacher, mm. you know, um, and that, yeah, I think that's wrong. But yeah, in, indeed. And um, yeah, you have, I mean, you've been peppering this podcast with analogies as much as I ho hoped you would, because <laughs> um, I just love it. I, you know, I think it is so helpful, especially when, you know, people, a tendency for people to get overly kind of technical with things mm -hmm. and you, you put things that across in a way that are so clear. Um, and I really liked the primary the, That's well, why I the primary teacher. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, but I really liked, you did, you did one about parents supporting children um, with their remote learning, um, being a bit like yes. getting children to eat their dinner. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. um and also why sort of thinking about catch-up was actually a bit like thinking about um somebody getting back into sport after healing a sort of broken bone and I'd really love it yeah. if you could share those um with listeners mm. if that's okay well the one about the remote learning was really because I was trying I was trying to find a way to relate what parents were doing to something that they would know um, and I'm not a parent myself, unfortunately. Um, I do have a number of nephews and nieces and godchildren and all that kind of thing. So I've been around the dinner table with them and seen what my friends and family do. Um, every parent, every parent will have sat at the dinner table or on the floor or somewhere feeding their child when they're a toddler, because that's how you teach children to, you know, you feed them and then they start feeding themselves, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get into that situation where I see this with my nieces, um, they get halfway through their dinner and then they go, I'm stuffed. Mm -hmm. And then I can see my brother kind of working out whether they really are full or whether he's going to make them eat a bit more or whether he's going to go, actually, I don't really care. They had a big lunch. It doesn't really matter. Um, because he knows their eating habits. He knows what's normal for them and what's not normal. He knows how much they eat, how much they don't eat, what they like, what they don't like. And it really just seemed to me that if parents approached it in that same way with the home learning, they know their children, they know when they've genuinely had enough and need a break, 
they will know when actually they're just trying it on because they want to go and do something else, which is perfectly normal. Mm -hmm. And they know when they're going to say, actually, you did a full day yesterday. I'm not going to worry too much about today. Um, the same way that sort of, you know, one of my nieces, when she was sort of six, set five or six, would still like to be spoon fed sometimes because she wants a bit of attention. Mm. You know, I can remember her mum sitting at the table spoon feeding her when she didn't need to be spoon fed at all because she wanted that little bit of time with her mum. Her mum was happy to do it as a one-off, yeah. you know, every once in a while. And she'd get the dinner eaten. The mm. same way that actually it's not going to hurt a child if once in a while a parent sits there and does all the work with them. We're not expecting you to do it every time. We're not, we, you, as a parent, you wouldn't expect to sit at every dinner table with a six-year-old, feeding them from a spoon every dinner time just to get them to eat the dinner. And even if you are a parent like that, fine. If that's how your family works, that's fine. Do the same thing with the home learning. Um, so it was just kind of understanding when your child's had enough, understanding when you want to keep going, understanding when you're going to finish and when you're going to accept it not finished yeah. and working out what almost your balanced diet of home learning is mm. as opposed to having to do everything the entire time. Because I can bet your life there's very few children in our school that eat every single bit of every single meal independently every single meal time. Yeah, no, exactly. And and I think it's also because um, it can be so linked, as you say, to do they want to go and do something out of their attempt, you know, other things, not just purely are they hungry, are they not hungry, how how full or not are they? And uh, and, and And also when a child can't really express that, and is yeah. you know or, or they're pre-verbal yeah. or whatever it is and you're just having to try and guess at guess at when that. they do the, do the thing that you know I don't like this well you ate it yesterday no I didn't you did yeah. you ate it yesterday I don't like it today that thing that children do it'll mm. be the same thing I can't read this well you read it yesterday I can't read it today yeah and then as a you then know whether you're going to go you're sitting there till you've read it all or whether you're just going to say I'm not going to fight this battle I'll worry about the maths instead yeah. And, and also, I think that's the, the interesting thing um, in terms of sort of parents interaction with their child versus a professional who's dealing with a yeah. class of children that age. You know, like you say, if, if a child says, I can't read it or whatever, you know, like a, a parent isn't going to necessarily know, you know, where that sits in relation to everything else. Yes. They just have to work in the moment with <laughs> what their child is doing. That's when we said to when I put that analogy out to our parents in our weekly email, I said to them, you know, if you're not sure, you know what your child's eating habits are. If you're not sure what their learning habits are, check with the teacher. Because hmm. they'll be able to say to them, oh, they can do that with their eyes shut, they're having you on. Or whether they're going to say, actually, they often struggle with that. Try it this way. This is what I do in class hmm. or whatever. Or I let them sit on a cushion or I let them have a five minute break or whatever it is the class teacher does. Um, so the parent knows they're not um, pressurizing their child too much neither let them get away with it but yeah <laughs> that's to me what parenting's all about all the way through <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i think it's, it is all and and as our as our worlds sort of have gotten smaller and the, the people within our you know houses is just so much of our time it's sort of remembering there are other there are other children doing other things and it's you know not as big as a of a concern as as, as people might feel but you, you lose that sense of um of community and um, getting yes. beyond yeah. and you, you, a little bit like if you've got a child to tea who has different eating habits to your child mm. who's allowed to for example pick their food up rather than use a knife and fork it's the same thing with the learning at home 
you know you don't know what everybody else is doing in all the other houses and you assume you either assume that you're doing it better than everybody else or you assume you're not doing it right and everybody else is doing it right when actually and that's one of the things about this lockdown everybody kind of assumes oh no I'm the only one in this position when actually it's everybody mm. I'm having such an awful time this is terrible for me it's terrible for them as well it's terrible for them as well um we're just not telling people about it and that well, social media's got a huge part to play in that as well because we always show our best lives, don't we? Mm. Our best or our worst. We never show our regular normal, you know. Yeah, so true, so true. And oh, oh, my child's a genius. Oh, my child can't have forgotten what his name is. You know, it's one or the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that. Yeah, definitely um, agree with that. And and thinking about um, looking at, ahead to catch up. Do you want to explain your kind of broken broken bones? Um, I hate the phrase catch up for a start. Yeah. Absolutely hate it. Uh, because catch up with who? Who's in front? To catch up, there's obviously something ahead. Um, what is it? Who is it? We're all in this same boat together. Um, and I just, I don't understand. Uh, I've not seen it written down anywhere. So it's just the, it's, it's the impression that I get from everything that is out there that we're expected to catch these children up. And I, by, by that, I assume that the government mean the learning that they didn't have, or as I'm saying, the teacher, the direct teaching mm. they didn't have, because they've still been learning, but they haven't been directly taught certain topics, certain aspects of maths, whatever. Um, and to make sure that they do get that, there seems to be this urgency. It's from the funding, I think. I think that's where mm. I picked this impression up, because the funding is, is um, time limited. And to me, it, you're never going to do it in 18 months. Mm. It's, it's ridiculous. And that's when I was thinking, well, you know, you wouldn't do anything with anything else. You wouldn't do this with any other issue. And then I thought, okay, if you break your leg, if somebody breaks the leg, like if a child, if a seven-year-old breaks their leg, a bad break, they've got a full cast from sort of hip to ankle, can't get into school, et cetera, et cetera. Um, maybe even has to have some sort of operation or pins or something, I don't know, something like this and it's say October time, no one's gonna go, oh my goodness, but he's gonna be running in sports day in July. What are we gonna do? He's gotta make sure it heals because, <coughs> excuse me, something, something physical like a broken bone, and I'm not a medic in any way, shape or form, has got to be given time to heal properly. And if it doesn't heal properly in the right time with the right physio and the right whatever it is that people do these days, it will, it will not heal properly and could in theory have lifelong implications and possibly life-changing issues so if you take that same analogy so the seven-year-old with a broken leg they're not going to get to do sports day in July forget it it's not going to happen because we're going to abandon that idea and we're going to grieve for it and whatever so that we can maybe think you might want in sports day the following year well if it's a really bad break maybe the medics will be saying actually you're not really going to be looking at sports day next year either we should be, I think, we should be able to say we will forfeit two years of sports days mm. so that when this child is 17, they can run a marathon. Mm. When this child leaves school, they're an Olympic athlete. Because there's all that time to make this up, to catch it up. Mm. It doesn't have to be done in the next 18 months. So one of the things we're thinking about at the moment, we haven't finalised it, we haven't looked into logistics of it or anything like that yet, it's just an idea at the moment, is rewriting our curriculums, and I'm saying curriculum, at the moment we have one curriculum for the whole school and all the children follow it. 
what we're looking at now is saying, okay, let us make a bespoke curriculum for each cohort of children based on how much time they've got left with us, what direct teaching they've missed, and how do we put that key learning into the remaining curriculum so we're not overloading the children, we're not trying to teach them too much, but by the time they leave us, they've learned and been taught everything they would have been taught had they had the whole seven years with us. Obviously, there's more pressure for our current sixes and year fives. Yeah. But sort of year four and all the year group before that, they have literally got years to get this done. Um, and that's what we're looking to do with our subject leaders, saying, well, you know which bits people have missed that haven't been taught. Where are, which bits of those can you say, actually, that's not going to matter. We can bin that. We'll bin that sports day. We're going to concentrate on this one. Um, which key elements of learning I can put with this other topic here or with this thing here? Um, or am I just going to put a big bit on this plan that says this year group never learned this, teach it first? Mm. Um, or, or whatever. So each year group, each cohort has got its own curriculum moving forward um, until, until we're back to how we should be. Um, that's what we're thinking about at the moment. So that it's not, it is a marathon, not a sprint. We're not looking to do sports day next year or the year after. We're looking to do a marathon when they leave. Yeah, ex- exactly. And, and, you know, you kind of think that, I mean, that's how a lot of, 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 of schools just address curriculum in general, thinking, you know, what is it we want them to, to leave having done and experienced and kind of work, work backwards. And as you say, this, this notion of, of, of catch up does feel like it is very soon going to be everybody's least, <laughs> least favourite phrase. Um, and, and particularly, you know, uh, this this idea of, as you say, catching up to 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 who, because with these children, they're, they're learning these things for the the first the first time. And we now we now know, or we are pretty sure we know that um, all all children will be going back on the eighth of eighth of March. How are you feeling about that? Are you um, are you excited? Apprehensive? Um, I bet, I, I, you know, I'm sure the children will be glad. Um, how are you feeling? I have mixed feelings about it all. I have real mixed feelings about it. I'm not really sure how I feel about it because just like everybody else, I have my own opinion and my own personal um, feelings about it, depending on my personal circumstances, just like everybody else in the world has. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure. I think there are most of our children, as you say, will be absolutely raring to go and be so excited to be back at school. And most of my staff will be so excited to be back at school and see the children, be with the children. But it won't be all of them. It won't be all the children. It won't be all the families and it won't be all the staff. Um, so I have a duty of care to all of those people. So I'm really quite aware that everybody has a different opinion. Everybody has different feelings and they're not wrong because everything's relative and that's one of the I was going to say joys <laughs> it is one of the joys it's also one of the curses of being a head teacher because you need to manage all of that regardless of how I feel about it um I've got to manage the people that don't want to come back to work and the families don't want to send the children back to school but they're being expected to um as well as the ones that are running in gung-ho going yes I'm back at school hooray yeah, no, that is that is so true. Thinking about how to, um, you know, kind of lead lead with positivity and etc. But also, as you say, bearing in mind that you have to be able to speak to and relate to people who who have those concerns, um, and that's harder to do if you're right up there and they're right down there. All the way through this, all the way through this, since the very very beginning, nobody 
on, it sounds like a criticism, it's not a criticism at all, but nobody on the staff and nobody in the parent body has asked me how I as an individual person are feeling about the whole pandemic. Because I am the head teacher and that is my job and that is what I do. And I will do it. And I'll have my head teacher mask on when I'm feeling crappy. Um, and I'll take it out of my family when I get home like everybody else does. But it's, and, and that's the job. I'm not expecting people to come and go, how are you? I'm not, I'm not expecting that. I'm not, don't even necessarily want it. But I am the face of the school and that's how I have to present. So I don't often share my opinion and feelings on a personal level. They tend to be more on a professional level because actually that's not. It's not about me. It's about the children and the families and the staff. No, exactly. And um, I mean, this this podcast will be likely going out um, a bit after um, the return. But it, thank you for sharing that. I think it is really interesting to to hear about how you, as you say, go about go about fronting those things. And that's not to say that you know putting putting a mask on is a bad thing, or you know, but it is as I say, as you say, recognizing that you have to be able to speak to and lead all those all those various people, and that is. It comes back to what we started off talking about because it depends on your community. My community in Rotherhithe and Bermondsey, I would have been far better off sobbing in the playground with them. That would have communicated with those, that would have connected with those parents far better. Mm -hmm. And I probably would have done that, you know. Um, Here, it's not like that. Here they need to see that I'm there, I've got it. We've got this, I'm on it, and we're strong and we're moving forwards. so again, it is, it's, it's, it's how to best connect with your community and, and get them through whatever you're getting through, whether it's pandemic or just getting the child through primary life. Um, but yeah, that, that emotional, emotional intelligence that you've clearly got in, in spades is, is, is obviously key there. And uh, anything else you'd like to, to share with our listeners in closing? It's, <sighs> the only thing that, that I really want to share, which I don't think will come as a surprise to anybody listening, really, um, I don't disagree with it either. Is I don't understand why people don't want to work in schools. <laughs> Children are the most amazing things ever, ever. When you're having a rubbish day or something horrible's just happened, you can walk into a classroom, we'll go down to a section, have a quick play, and everything feels better. And I don't, I couldn't work in an office the entire time and never have contact with children in a school. Um, so for all the bits that are rubbish, for all the bits that are stressful and horrible and all the rest of it, it's those kids are an absolute joy, every single one I've ever worked with. So, yeah, that is an absolutely uh, brilliant note to end on. And thank you so much, Kate, for talking to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.